Tonight on Throwback Thursday, as Tune FM celebrates 50 years, 1993. Baby! They're only at McDonald's. Teeny beanie babies. We're talking about three significant events from the year 93. Here in Australia, the Eastern Seaboard Fires, the launch of the ever-popular Beanie Babies, and the Waco Siege in the United States. Actually called or known as the Branch Davidians is an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They broke off from the church and moved out here from Los Angeles back in 1935. But despite the longevity of the cult in and around the Waco area, very few Waco residents that we spoke with had ever even heard of this cult before today. All that in our summary of the year 1993 here on Throwback Thursday, helping Tune FM celebrate 50 years. You are indeed listening to Throwback Thursday 1993. My name's Jake. I'm your host as per usual. It's a pleasure to be here with you on uh, what is a lovely afternoon here in Armadale. It's really starting to warm up and we're absolutely flying through our 50 weeks uh, going through 50 years of history uh, as we celebrate our 50th anniversary here at Tume. We're going to be talking about the year 1993 this week. It was a bit of an interesting year, some relatively significant events. We're going to be talking about uh, one of the largest bushfire seasons in Australian history, including the Eastern Seaboard fires, which broke out in late 1993 and would continue into early 94. We'll be talking about the launch of Beanie Babies, one of the most popular uh, toy chains in history. Uh, a really, really popular launch there. And then we'll finish off by talking about the Waco Siege, which of course many of you will remember taking place in the United States of America. But we will get underway with the Eastern Seaboard Fires. Uh, they were exclusively here in New South Wales during the bushfire season of 93-94. 20,000 firefighters were deployed against 800 fires right throughout the state and along the coast. Uh, ranges from Batemans Bay down in the south all the way up to the Queensland border, including populated areas in the city of Sydney and the Blue Mountains and the Central Coast. The fires caused mass evacuations of many thousands of people and would eventually claim four lives, destroy 225 homes and burn out over 800,000 hectares of bushland. The firefighting effort raised in response was one of the largest seen in Australian history. So they began actually quite late in 1993. It was the 27th of December that the first one broke out and they burned through to the 16th of January 94. Over 800 separate severe fires burned along the coastal areas of New South Wales, affecting some of the state's most populous regions. Blazes, blazes emerged from the Queensland border down the north and central coast, through the Sydney Basin and down the south coast all the way to Batemans Bay. The 800,000 hectare spread of fires were generally contained within less than 100 kilometres from the coast and many of them burned through rugged and largely uninhabited country and national parks or nature reserves, which sounds like a good thing because it's uninhabited. Unfortunately, because it's so uh, rugged and off the charts and not very well frequented, that made it very, very hard to fight these blazes. The New South Wales fires began on the north coast uh, on Boxing Day and by the 2nd of January, the entire region of the Clarence Valley, which is just to the east of us here in Armadale, was facing its worst fires since 1968. The shires from Coffs Harbour to Tweed Heads and inland to Casino and Kyogle were declared a state of emergency on the 7th of January 94 as 68 
different fires raged throughout those regions. But the 29th of December 1993, the Department of Bushfire Services was monitoring more than a dozen fires around the state, and th homes were threatened in Taramara by a fire in the Lane Cove River Reserve, and a scrub fire had briefly cut off the holiday village of Bundina in the Royal National Park south of Sydney. The Royal National Park was actually one of the worst hit areas in the state. Uh, pretty much the entire national park went up. Uh, but there was fires right around the state. A suspicious fire was ignited at Cottage Point in the Kurungai Chase National Park. It would spread to burn down 30 houses and 10,000 hectares of that national park with 3,000 elsewhere. Major backburning managed to protect the surrounding suburbs, but it completely smothered Sydney in smoke. You will see some very famous photos of Sydney being absolutely choked by smoke during the early uh, weeks of 1994. Uh, in, in total, uh, 13 houses uh, were destroyed in suburbs around Lane Cove National Park, 42 around the Kuringai Chase National Park. As we said, in the end, statewide, it was a massive total of 225 homes destroyed and four lives tragically lost. Over 20,000 volunteer and professional firefighters from New South Wales and from interstate fought the blazes. It was the largest fire suppression effort yet undertaken in Australian history. That has since obviously been uh, beaten, but at that time, this was unprecedented. Four people were killed by the fires, three of them firefighters. A woman was killed in Como Janali, uh, seeking shelter in her pool, while volunteer firefighter Robert Page was killed by a tree falling on his tanker in the Double Duke Forest near Grafton. Volunteer Norman Anthes from Lithgow died mopping up the Mount Horrible fire near Lithgow, and 17-year-old volunteer Clinton Westwood died in a tanker crash as well. Uh, the 1994 New South Wales report of the Select Committee on Bushfires from the Parliament of New South Wales examined the causes of the fires. They found that, according to uh, the Sydney Morning Herald at least, the Blue Mountains were full of a whole lot of dry undergrowth and had not had a significant bushfire for 20 years. So that debate continues today, of course, about what do you do about all that dry undergrowth that builds up if we're trying to prevent bushfires because when you've got just natural forest everywhere, that's bushfire's job that de that destroys all that. Um, there was a bit of a political response to it as well. Uh, politicians were returning from holidays to have to try and deal with the catastrophe. Premier of New South Wales, John Fay, was actually on a holiday on the Gold Coast when the fires first broke out and had to return to New South Wales. Acting Prime Minister Brian Howe paid tribute to New South Wales firefighting operations uh, Paul, Prime Minister Paul Keating would eventually cut short his holiday as well to receive a briefing on the crisis and inspect the firefighting efforts with Premier Fay as well. And Keating announced that an additional 500 troops were on standby to assist with firefighting efforts um, and thanked the 7,500 volunteers who'd been fighting since Boxing Day. Uh, the 1993-94 fire season was amongst the largest firefighting efforts in Australian history, and there was a lengthy coronial inquest leading to the formation of the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. The RFS was put in place 
as a result of these specific fires. The Rural Fire Acts of Fires Act of 1997 was then proclaimed uh, in September 97, uh, and that basically puts in place the fire protection and suppression uh, services that we have here in New South Wales today. So it is those fires that were the significant bushfires that basically led to the structuring of um, fire prevention and fire uh, fighting that we have in this state today. So very significant moment in Australian history, certainly in New South Wales history, uh, the 1993-94 bushfires. When we come back, we're going to be talking about something on a little bit of a brighter note. We're going to be talking about the launch of one of the most popular toy lines in history. That's after this song from 1993, Break It Down Again by Tears for Fears.
Break it down again by Tears for Fears. You're listening to Throwback Thursday 1993 here on 106.9 Tune FM. We're going to take a brighter twist in this segment. We're going to talk about Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies are a line of stuffed toys that were created by businessman H. Ty Warner, who founded Ty Inc. in 1986. These were created in 1993. They're very famous for being stuffed with plastic pellets or beans, hence their name, rather than the conventional soft sort of stuffing that you get in a teddy bear, which gives them a very flexible feel. They come in many different forms, which are mostly animals. Uh, and in an interview, they've, uh, the creator said that the whole idea was that it looked real because it could move, because it was more flexible because of the uh, plastic stuffing. Uh, they were created in 1993. They would really kick off during the second half of the 1990s as they emerged as a major fad and a bit of a collectible. They've been cited as being the world's first internet sensation in 1995. They were collected not only as toys, but as a financial investment due to the high resale value of particular Beanie Babies that were rarer than others. Nine original Beanie Babies were launched in 93. Legs the Frog, Squealer the Pig, Spot the Dog, Flash the Dolphin, Splash the Whale, Chocolate the Moose, Patty the Platypus, and Brownie the Bear, who was later renamed Cubby the Bear. Oh, and Pinches the Lobster, sorry. They were not in factory production until 94, but they were first launched in 93. The sales were slow at first, to the point that by 1995, many retailers were actually refusing to buy the products in the bundles that they were offered in, while others outright to refuse, refused to buy them in any form. But their popularity soon took off, first starting locally in Chicago before becoming a national craze across the United States. In 1996, they released a new product called Teeny Beanies, which was a miniature offshoot of the original Beanie Babies line. And they were sold alongside McDonald's Happy Meals to celebrate the product's 17th anniversary. And it was a massive fad all of a sudden. Everyone wanted Beanie Babies. Beanie Babies began to emerge as really popular collectibles in late 95. They became a hot toy. They, their company's strategy of deliberate scarcity for some designs, they produced each new design in limited quantity, restricting individual store shipments to limited numbers of each design, and they would regularly retire old designs as well, which created a huge secondary market for the toys and increased their popularity and value as a collectible. Uh, they systematically retired various designs, and many people assumed that all retired designs would rise in value the way that early retirees had. Th previously, when things were made in uh, smaller quantities, obviously, once they're retired and you can no longer get them new, people start to look to get them secondhand, especially if they're collectors. So they increase in value. While you might have bought it for 20 bucks, someone might be willing to buy it for 50 because they need to get their hands on this particular one. The craze would last until the end of the 90s, but it would slowly decline after the company announced that they would no longer be making Beanie Babies, and they made a bear that was literally called The End. Sometime after the original announcement that the company would stop production, they asked the public to vote on whether it should continue, and fans and collectors voted overwhelmingly to keep the toys on the market. At the height of the popularity, people would flip beanies as much as tenfold on eBay, 10 times their original price on eBay. At the height of the product, Beanie Babies alone made up 10% of eBay's sales. 10% of eBay's sales. Some collectors insured their purchases for thousands of dollars. 
absolutely incredible. But the creator was keenly aware that the bubble was going to burst. He eventually required retailers who sold beanies to also stock other product lines by his company if they wished to continue selling beanies. None of those lines did anywhere near as well as Beanie Babies, but they did keep the company alive after the fad eventually did end in the late 1990s, and eventually some of them did become successful in their own right. Now, we did mention that they were the first kind of internet fad. Um, well, this is the story behind that. Ty Inc., the creators of the Beanie Babies, were the first business ever to produce a business-to-consumer website designed to engage their market. This was a major contributing factor to the early and rapidly growing popularity of Beanie Babies because as the internet took off in the mid to late 1990s, so did Beanie Babies. That was a website that you could use, you could get involved in. By the time the first iteration of the website was published in late 1995, only 1.4% of Americans were using the internet. But in tandem with the launch of the website, all Beanie Baby hang tags had the website URL and a, a bit of a call to action printed underneath the uh, on the on the tag on the bear that said visit our webpage. And as a result, all all of these consumers started visiting the website to gain information about Beanie Babies, which ones there there were out there, which ones they still had to collect, um, and how many of them there were, which ones were the really rare ones. They were the first business ever to leverage a website to connect and engage with consumers of their products, and this evolved into the world's first internet sensation. They became an absolute sensation. Some of the notable Beanie Babies, um, Princess the Bear was uh, made in honor of Princess Diana, who uh, died on the 31st of August, 1997. Uh, they announced uh, that bear in her honor. Decade the Bear was made in honor of Beanie Babies' 10th anniversary. They were made in multiple colors and most of them have silver sparkles on their bodies. That was made in 2003. Tabasco the Bull, named after Tabasco sauce, but it was uh, changed to snort because of apparent trademark infringement. Uh, he has all red feet, while if you get a snort, he has all white ones. Uh, Peanut the Royal Blue Elephant, most notable of all the beanies apparently, first started production in 1995. But then they noticed that the fabric color was wrong and it needed to be a light blue color. So they released a light blue version and stopped releasing the royal blue one. Only about 500 of the royal blue version were ever made. And as a result, still to this day, the royal blue peanut, the royal blue elephants can go for $1,500 if they've got an original tag. So check out your collection of Beanie Babies. Maybe you've got a, a grand and a half sitting around there. And the other notable one was Tremor the Dinosaur. He was the first beanie to be sent into space in uh, this year, actually, in May 2020, as part of the Crew Dragon Demo 2 mission. There was also a bit of a problem with counterfeit Beanie Babies, which began to surface in 1997. Cheap knockoffs and fakes of the common beanies were widely available at discount prices, but authorities cracked down on it in the late 1990s. People were eventually prosecuted for their involvement in counterfeit beanies. In 1998, English authorities seized more than six thousand counterfeit Beanie Babies. And in 1999, a man in Minnesota was imprisoned, fined, and put on probation for involvement in smuggling counterfeit Beanie Babies. So this is an absolute phenomenon. They would eventually license um, to basically 
make characters from popular children's franchises, from Nickelodeon, DreamWorks, and Paramount, um, and cartoons on the Nickelodeon TV channels, such as SpongeBob SquarePants and Dora the Explorer, DreamWorks animation movies such as Shrek, um, and Ice Age, and all that sort of thing, Scooby-Doo. They would become this absolute phenomenon of collectibles, and uh, they still somewhat continue to this day, although they're nowhere near as popular. But that fad, all kicking off, with the invention of the Beanie Baby in 1993. I'm sure you remember it well if you're a 90s kid. Well, it's time to go back to the music here on Throwback Thursday 1993. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the Waco Siege, uh, a very significant event that happened over in the States in 1993. That's coming up on Throwback Thursday, but this is Bed of Roses by Bon Jovi.
as you close your eyes, know I'll be thinking about you. While my mistress, she calls me to stand in her spotlight again. Tonight, I won't be alone. To know that don't mean I'm not lonely. I've got nothing to prove but you that I died a different. Bed of Roses by Bon Jovi. You're listening to Throwback Thursday, 1993, here on 106.9 Tune FM. We're going to talk about now possibly the biggest and most tragic thing to happen during 1993. And we're just going to talk about it very briefly because there's a lot of really complicated detail behind this one. And it's uh, it's just going to be controversial if we go into it too much. But it also was too big for me not to mention. And that is the Waco siege uh, in the United States. This was a massive siege it and it, it was a really big turning point in uh, US history as well as there's a few events that we're going to talk about um, in the coming weeks that were directly inspired by or um, direct follow-ons from this event but essentially the Waco siege if you don't know was uh, a law enforcement siege of a compound that belonged to a religious sect called the Branch Davidians. It was the Mount Carmel Center, a compound about 20 kilometers outside the city of Waco in Texas. And it was sieged by American Federal Police, Texas State Law Enforcement, and the U.S. military. And the siege lasted 51 days between the 28th of February and the 19th of April, 1993. So the Branch Davidians were led by a man named David Koresh, and they were headquartered at this Mount Carmel Center ranch uh, in this small community called Axtell in Texas. Um, Now, the group were suspected of stockpiling illegal weapons, and so the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF, obtained a search warrant for the compound and arrest warrants for Koresh and a select few of the group's members. But the incident actually began when the ATF turned up to serve that warrant, and an intense gunfight erupted. Basically, it would result in the deaths of four government agents and six Branch Davidians during that gunfire, and the the property would become under siege following the ATF's attempt to enter the property and failure to execute the search warrant. The FBI would get involved, and eventually the FBI 
said enough was enough, and they launched an assault and initiated a tear gas attack after 51 days of siege. There was an attempt to force them out of the ranch and enter, but shortly thereafter, the Mount Carmel Center quickly became engulfed in flames, and the fire resulted in the deaths of 76 Branch Davidians, including 25 children, two pregnant women, and their leader, David Koresh himself. Now, the events of the siege and the attack are disputed by various sources. The FBI gave an official report, but there's a lot of people that don't think that it actually uh, details what actually happened. So I'm not even going to go into any of that detail because I'll just say something that is either wrong or somebody else thinks is wrong. So we're just not going to go there. But essentially, this um, this siege had lasted 51 days. The FBI tried to put it to an end and the uh, the compound would burst into flames. But the last thing I'm going to uh, break down about that, um, it, as we said, it's going to become important in our future episodes as we break down some future events that took place in the U.S. that were inspired by this uh, this show of force against uh, federal and state uh, law enforcement. This it, it kind of it, it had been seen, but probably not to this extent. This this fight back against the police when um, when they turned up to do what they legally have the right to do. And that would inspire a number of um, very, very unfortunate incidents that would happen in the coming years that we'll talk about soon. But we're going to talk about the Branch Davidians. Who actually are they? Because I've mentioned that name a bunch of times and it's um, it, it's probably not something that we've heard much about. But they're a religious sect. Um, they were founded in 1955 by a man named Benjamin Roden. And they're an offshoot from a uh, from General Davidians. So Davidians was a group that was established by Viktor Hutev in 1935. Hutev was a Bulgarian immigrant and he was a Seventh-day Adventist and he wrote a series of tracts which were titled The Shepherd's Rod and they called for the reform of the church um, and after his ideas were rejected he uh, he took some of his followers and settled on some new land and uh, established the Davidian uh, group. It was basically um, a group that was preparing for the second coming uh, is is the best way to describe their beliefs. They believed that the second coming was imminent. They believed that they needed to prepare for that. And uh, they actually prophesied it happening in 1959 and uh, went into full on lockdown, um, ended up some of them building houses, some of them settling in tents, selling all of their possessions for the most part. and and setting up and, and saying the second coming is happening. And obviously when that prophecy failed to come about, it was a bit of a, a, a bit of an, a, an incident. But um, the Branch Davidians broke off from the Davidians in 1955 after the death of the original uh, founder of the Davidians, uh, Victor Hutev. Um, so they are this group that they, they, they do believe essentially the same thing that the second coming is is happening it's going it's going to happen um but they are now of course most associated with the waco siege which is a very unfortunate uh incident to be associated with and a, a tragic uh loss of life on uh, both sides that 76 people were killed in that siege and of course uh officers who were killed in the gunfire as well um so that's all we're going to talk about uh, on that, but that was probably the most significant event of 1993, the Waco siege, uh, which took place in Texas and resulted in a tragic loss of life as uh, those Branch Davidians fought back against law enforcement. 
Well, that brings to a close Throwback Thursday 1993. Don't forget to join us at the same time next week for 1994. We'll be moving on to uh, yet another year as we trace our way through Tune FM's history.